morning, church. How is everyone? Okay, we've got some awesome skits. Everybody's, everybody's here. But um, glad that you guys are here. Um, if you don't know, my name is Cody King, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're in week 14 of our uh, series on Ephesians. So if this is your first time with us, you're way behind. Um, and I would encourage you to go, uh, go online to our website, and you can view all of, uh, all of the previous messages in the series and get caught up. Um, it, has been, it has been really good. I've really enjoyed walking through Ephesians, um, just from a teaching, not just a teaching standpoint, but also each week, just listening and learning. But, uh, but Paul, he writes this letter to the Ephesian church, and he's writing not necessarily to address specific issues within that church as with other letters, but he's writing to give the church just doctrine. Like, this is, what, this is who you are. This is who you are in light of Christ and who he is and what he has done. And then the second half of his letter, he just kind of lays out, because of that, this is now practically how you live this thing out, how you walk this out. So last week, we began a section where he's really addressing relationships um, and how we are to submit to one another in those relationships. And he begins with the husband and wife, the marriage relationship. And he lays out the picture, that being a picture of the gospel, of how church, how the church relates to Christ. You know, wives submit to your husbands, but husbands love your wives, wives as Christ loves the church. And just walks through that picture, but then he continues that idea of submitting and relating to one another in the following. He starts with, with children to, to their parents, and then from there to the workplace in you know, bond servants to their masters. So we're going to continue that this, this morning in, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. But uh, before we start, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. Lord, thank you for this morning. And I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you for, for the instruction that you give. God, that you didn't just leave us to figure it out on our own. Lord, that by your spirit, Lord, you gave instruction. And I just pray for us this morning as we look into that instruction, Lord, that we would learn from it, Lord, and I pray that we would um, seek to, to walk this out in our lives. But Lord, I just pray that you show us how to do that. And just be with us this morning, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so Paul begins in chapter 6, verse 1, and he starts with children. Right? He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. He says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So he says, obey your parents in the Lord. Right? It is for his sake that you obey your parents. Right? And then he says that it is, that it is right. right. And that's easy for us to understand. The first line there shouldn't be too much there, but it's in the Lord. It's for his sake that you are to obey your parents for this is the right thing to do. I think all of us, as we grow up, we become to understand and, and know right from wrong, what we should and should not do. And here Paul says, it's simply, it is the right thing to do to obey your parents. In every society, parents would agree, I want my child to do what I say. We're not going to say, no, it's wrong that my child listens to me. It's not the idea. Simply do it because this is the right thing to do. It's right under the law to do it. But then Jesus himself sets the example in Luke 2.51 that he submits to his parents as a child. And then verse 2 is quoted from Exodus 20, 12 and Deuteronomy 5, 16 with the statement, this is the first commandment with the promise. So he's quoting, honor your father and mother. 
That's the fifth commandment. It's interesting when you look at the commandments. Right? The fifth commandment here, it begins commandments that deal with our relation to other people. The first four deal with our relationship to God right? and how we're to respond to God, that we shouldn't have any other gods before him. We shouldn't create idols. We shouldn't take his name in vain and all those things. But then when he begins talking about relationships and how we relate to other people, he begins it, interesting, with the parent-child relationship. And he tells the children, honor your father and mother. And then it is the first commandment with a promise that it will be, go well with you, that you will live long in the land, right? the land that the Lord has promised you. You know, in the Old Testament, New Testament, he just, the Lord's promised you. It's, it's, to, it's the new covenant to the church that you will live long in the land. But it's interesting to me if I think about it. As parents, you know, when we want our child to do something, we, you know, we bribe them. Right? If you do this, I'm going to give you that. We'll go get ice cream if you do this. If you stop doing that and you just sit there and you be quiet for 10 more minutes, I promise on the way home we're going to stop and get ice cream. But right, but there's, there's do what I say, obey what I say, and then I'm going to reward you for it. Now here, though, we don't need to get that mixed up you know, to say that the Lord is bribing us to do what he says. Because what does he say? He says, obey your parents in the Lord because this is the right thing to do. But there's a promise attached to it that you will live long in the land. And this isn't a promise of just health and wealth and longevity. It's not a personal promise that if you do this, you're going to have a long life on the earth. But the point is that God delights in obedience and he blesses those who walk in it. But conversely, those who walk in disobedience don't receive a blessing. You can look at the nation of Israel, right? God, God told them, he commanded them, if you keep my commandments, and this is his covenant with the nation of Israel, if you keep my commandments and my statutes, I will bless you. But he clearly tells them, if you do not keep my commandments and you do not keep my statutes, I will curse you. So there's blessing or curse depending on our obedience to him. But here he simply says that there is promise. You will live long in the land if you obey your parents in the Lord it's the right thing to do. And then children learn what they one day will live out, and that's trust, right? Obedience is a choice, but they learn to trust their parents. Right? When their parents tell them to do something, oftentimes they have to, children have to accept the fact that I'm being told to do something, and I may not ever know the full reason why I'm being told to do this, right? Parents, have you ever told your child to do something? Why? And they ask why, and you're like, because I said so. Who's ever said that to their parent, to their kid? Exactly. So you, right? Because I said so. I don't have to explain this to you. One, because you're my child, I'm your parents. I'm the authority. You are my child. You are to obey what I say because that's what I say. And oftentimes, children, you could explain to them why it is that you told them not to do something, but in their innocence or wherever, they may not understand fully. So there's no point in, under, or in explaining it to them. But they're learning to trust you that you have their best interest in mind and you're telling them not to do something because you love them and they need to trust you in that even though they don't understand the reason why you're telling them that. Now fast forward. As an adult, when you experience something in life or you're asking, you're asking for something, you're wanting something to happen, the Lord says no. And how quick are we to say why? With no response. But it's likely because we're not meant to know why. 
or we can't fully understand the reason why because we don't have the foresight that the Lord does. But nonetheless, we are to trust him that he knows what's best for us when he tells us no. When he's leading. Obedience starts as a child. It's when he starts here and talking to children. Learn this now. Learn to trust your parents because one day you're going to experience a situation where you're going to need to trust the Lord in what he says without knowing and fully understanding. But then he, in verse 4, he switches to parents, right? It's, it's, it's never without balance. As, as Paul, right, he speaks to wives, but then he speaks to husbands, both sides of the relationship. So in verse 4, now he says, Fathers or parents, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So he says, do not provoke to anger. And it's interesting to me why he starts here with the parents. And it's actually, he doesn't really start here because he doesn't say anything else other than bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. But he says, do not provoke them to anger. There's no other emotion that he mentions here other than anger. And I'm curious why that is. But if you look at the second part of the verse, we, I think we can glean an answer from that. The second part of the verse is bring them up in the dis- discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's call that godliness. Bring them up and teach them godliness. Teach them to be righteous. But if you look at James chapter 1, he says, he says, be slow to speak, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If we're to bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord to teach them to live godly lives, to live righteous lives, anger does not produce that. But what is anger? What is anger to you? As, a, as adults and even children, to some extent, they understand. They've felt this emotion before. They know how it feels to be angry. All right, who's ever been angry? Who's ever let that anger out? All right? So we know how it feels to have the emotion to let it out. When we let out anger, we call that wrath. And when we let that anger out, what tends to happen? Good things? Usually not. We may feel some relief But the fallout from that relief is usually worse than what caused the anger to begin with. Amen? But he says here, do not provoke them to anger. So what does anger produce? We know what anger is, but what does it produce? Proverbs 14, 29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly or foolishness. And I encourage you to read through the Proverbs on what it says about foolishness and the calamity that follows foolishness. It is, very, it is a very good study through the Proverbs on just foolishness alone and the warnings against being foolish. But anger brings about foolish and fo- foolishness and folly. And then Proverbs 29, 22, a man of wrath stirs up strife and one given to anger causes much transgression. But he stirs up strife. It stirs up conflict. But not only that, it causes, the anger causes transgression. So he says here, don't provoke your children to anger. Don't provoke them to to bring about conflict. Because they're going to cause transgression. They're going to cause wrong things to happen. They're going to cause foolishness. They're going to be foolish. And not only that, think about this. If you provoke your child to anger, and they do get angry, and then they let that anger out, Typically, when we get angry and we let that out, where do we let it out at? The object 
of our anger, correct? So if you're a parent and you're provoking your child to anger and then they get angry, they let that anger out on you, what are you now required to do as a parent? Correct the behavior. And then you have to discipline and get on your child for a behavior that you put in them. You get the picture. And there will be an accounting of this as parents. He says, do not provoke your children to anger. Proverbs 22 warns of making friendship with such a person that is angry. But it produces foolishness, strife, conflict, hatred, malice, violence, and wrath. All of which destroy rather than build up. So it's fitting that Paul says here, do not provoke your children to anger. But the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So practically speaking, what does it look like to provoke your child to anger? And here's a few examples. So one being overprotecting. Helicopter parents or helicopter mom typically lean in. But it's doing everything for their children and not not letting them gain any degree of independence or self-determination. Their identity is in you. And overprotecting and doing that for a prolonged period of time, it provokes them to anger whenever they get in a situation to where you're not there and they're with someone else that you want to leave them with. And all of a sudden, because of that overprotecting, they're so tied to you that they're going to lash out because they're not getting you. They're with someone else that they don't want to be. You have to guard against that. Then two is over-disciplining. It's being overly strict where children can go and what they can do. Who you, you never trust them to do things on their own. You're always questioning their judgment. Now, there is a healthy dose of this that must be present when it comes to discipline in that regard. Proverbs 23, 13, do not withhold discipline from a child. Right? If you strike him, he will not die. So, I mean, whip your kids if you need to. <laughs> However, provoking your child to anger can be done with verbal and physical abuse. There is a limit to where we can go. If you find yourself in anger, disciplining your child, check you grab a hold of that quickly. Because again, anger does not produce the righteousness of God. And if you are disciplining your child out of anger, you're not helping them, you're hindering them, and you're teaching them a behavior that you want to correct. And Paul says, don't do. You get the picture? But other things is expecting more than they can, never, than they can ever perform, right? They're never good enough. Or expecting less than they can perform, right? You're never approving or affirming or encouraging them. It's failing to sacrifice, making children feel as if they're a burden, or being legalistic, using the Bible or God to bring about a behavior that Scripture doesn't say is necessary. And then imbalance, right? It's failing to balance affirmation with discipline. You're affirming without disciplining, or you're disciplining without affirming or doing neither. But these are all these things here can bring about and provoke a child to anger, so guard against them. Then he says, but bring them up in two things here. One is in discipline. Bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. Right? In the Greek, it's padeia, meaning the whole training and education of children, which relates to cultivating their mind and their morals. It's not just teaching them a behavior or correcting a behavior. In Greek culture, it was, it was rearing a child in, in education 
and um, and the ideal making training them up to be the ideal member of the state, essentially. So here, for the Christian, it's, it's discipline. It's bringing them up to be the ideal Christian, the one that fears the Lord and knows the Lord. That's the idea of the whole person. In a, in, a, in a parallel verse here, Proverbs 22, 6 says, Train up a child in a way, in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. Now, this verse can be misinterpreted sometimes. Because you can read it when, as it says, Train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not turn from it. And this kind of carries the idea of it. If you train up a child in the way he should go, put this little foundation down here. He's going to get older. He's going to move out of the house. They're going to go into the world. They're going to experience the world. They're going to start to rebel. They're going to do some wrong things. They're going to fall. They're going to get up. They're going to fall. They're going to get up. But eventually, because of the foundation that you set, they're going to come back to the foundation. That's kind of the picture that can come from this verse sometimes. Just train them up in the way they should go. And when they're older... They'll come back to it. But all this in between is just this huge gray area. Right? But when you look at train up, the word in the Hebrew, it's a root word that describes a midwife that would rub the inside of an infant, of a newborn's mouth, you know, to, to, uh, to get it ready to start nursing. Right? But the word literally means the palate or the roof of the mouth. It carries with it the meaning that you are developing a thirst so he's saying, train up a child, right? Develop a thirst in the way he should go. And then Chuck Swindoll says this in uh, You and Your Child. Um, he says, in, in the way he should go, in means in keeping with, in cooperation with, in accordance to the way he should go. That is altogether different from your way. God is not saying, bring up a child as you see him. Instead, he says, if you want your training to be godly and wise, observe your child, be sensitive and alert, so as to discover his way and adapt your training accordingly. Way is a Hebrew word that suggests the idea of characteristic, manner, and mode. So he's saying, train up a child in keeping with his characteristics, who they are. Oftentimes, we, we train our children to be who we want them to be. We have this idea in our mind that, that they came from me, they need to be like me, or I failed at this and I want them to succeed at this. And we try and shape them into our image instead of realizing they're created in God's image and he made them to be who they are. And that's what we need to create in them. And Chuck Swindoll goes on and he says, in every child God places in our arms, there is a bent, a set of characteristics already established. The bent is fixed and determined before he is given over to our care. The child is not, in fact, merely a pliable piece of clay. We are not the potter. He has been set. He has been bent. And the parents who want to train this child correctly will discover that bent. Psalm 139, a familiar psalm. In 13 through 16, the psalmist says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. But oftentimes, at parents, we can not view our kids as created in the image of God, intricately woven together. 
days formed before even one of them came to be, but we want to shape them into the image we want them to be instead of who God created them to be. And if we're not careful, we're going to try and make them teachable. We're going to try and make them to be successful or strong as we define those two words. And ultimately, we could, if we're not careful, we could try and make them savable instead of looking for who they are and nurturing that and nurturing them to be who God created them to be, not who we want them to be. But that's train up a child in the way he should go. Train up a child to be who they are, not who we want them to be is the idea. And then for instruction, train up a child in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And instruction there is just simply modeling Christian behavior. One of the best ways to teach and the best ways people can learn is just by watching. Right? How many of you have ever, you got that stage with your kid, really, like, watch what you say, they're repeating everything right now. Because they're watching. They're paying attention. Instead of trying to create in your children what you want them to be, just model. Model who you want them to be. And in this context, Paul is writing to the Ephesian church and he's telling parents, model Christ, model Christian behavior. But you can't teach what you do not know. Right? You cannot give what you do not have. Deuteronomy uh, 6 is perhaps the most clear scripture as it pertains to modeling. Um, Moses writes and he says this in verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Right? In verse 5 and 6, he starts with you. You are to write these words on your heart, not just in your mind. Write them on your heart. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. The responsibility lies on you. He is saying, fathers, you, parents, you. But what do we do when we don't know something particular that we believe and we understand our children need to know this? What do we do then if we don't know it? We outsource it. Five days a week, we take our children to school and we drop them off for eight hours a day for someone else to teach them the math, the science, and the history that we don't remember. And we'll do the same thing with the Word of God. But instead of eight hours a day for five days a week, we'll bring them one hour on a Sunday morning, drop them off for someone else to teach them the fundamental concepts of Scripture and who God is because we don't remember them. You cannot teach what you do not know, but you're told the responsibility lies with you. You're to train up a child in the way he should go to be who he is, and you're to build them up and the discipline and instruction of the Lord that comes from you is what Paul's saying. It should come from you. And I'm not saying the child doesn't need to be, doesn't need to come to church. Children need to be in the church. They need to know and see the church fellowshipping and helping one another and coming together. We have kids ministry with the purpose to teach children. But if a parent believes the church is going to be the thing that solves their child's problems, you have misplaced hopes. The responsibility is always at the home. The home will always be the dominant influence in a child's life, good or bad. Always. 
It is the home. That is what Paul is writing to here in these relationships. He starts with a marriage relationship, husbands and wives. You're not going to have children without husbands and wives. In our day and time, you're like, yes, you can. But no, remember who Paul's writing to. He's writing to the church. If you're following what he says and what the Lord says and how to live, wives and husbands come together. They make children. They become parents. And this is how he says practically you live this out. You teach them these things. Max Anders says this, and I think it's brilliant. He says, a church will reinforce truth if it is upheld at home. If it is not upheld at home, the truth may be drowned in a sea of contradiction." sobering to me. Lord, don't let me one day have children and miss this. Because if we come and we drop them off for an hour for someone else to teach them what we don't remember, and then they come home and we don't act out what we know because we don't know it, we act out the world, and they see the difference, it's just contradiction, then everything that they saw just gets washed out. And then one day they're going to have your faith. And they're going to turn into the image that you have created them to see. Instead of who God wants them to be and God means them to be. But it happens at home. But then discipline and instruction of the Lord, he says it's of the Lord. Parents should always care more for their child's loyalty and obedience to Christ than to them. Their health, their success, how smart they are, how great of an athlete they are. All your aspirations for your children all should be secondary to them knowing and being loyal and obedient to the Lord before you or anything else. Because when this is right, everything else out here falls into place when this is right. And then he moves on. Goes from the child to the parent relationship. In verse 5, he goes, he goes into the, the bond servant master, the slave master relationship. So in verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. So bond servants in the Greek is doulos, but it means slave, literally. In that culture, Paul is writing to a slave society. He's writing to people in a slave society. Many of the people that were being converted to Christianity at this time were slaves. And they were either slaves because they were born into it, they were bought, or they owed something to someone, so they were working to pay it back as a bond servant, or they were just a servant in a household. But these people, nonetheless, they needed instruction. They needed, this is how you walk out this Christian life. Despite your circumstances and what you came from, he's not making an argument for human rights. He's just telling them, to revere Christ, this is how you relate to Christ, and because of that, this is how you relate to others in your circumstances. But he says, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with, sin, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. But what's true here for a slave society is true for a free society. Free society. So for our context today, you could look at this as the employee and the employer relationship. Praise the Lord, we're not in a slave society. But the same concepts apply. So just as he told children in verse 1, he says to obey your earthly masters. So when you go to work, yes, scripturally, you need to obey your boss. And then he says with this, he adds this, with fear and trembling. And a lot of times with those words, you know, we, can, we can look at those words and we can think that you need to be afraid or terrified of them. Right? But, but it's more, it's, you need to have a proper respect 
for who they are, for their authority and their lordship over your life. Right? A parallel uh, verse here is Colossians 3.22, and it parallels this passage saying, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, fearing the Lord. The same word, fearing the Lord. But here... It is as you would Christ, but it's to say, obey your boss because of your boss's boss, who is actually your boss. You follow? It's the same. You know, so, I mean, when you're in the office and your boss comes to you, hey, man, I need those TPS reports. I'm like, <laughs> I really don't want to do those right now. But he adds on, hey, man, I, I really need those TPS reports. The CEO, is, he's, he's down here. And then all of a sudden, you're, it changes, right? Oh, he, he's on this floor? You see how your mindset can change because it's not just your boss anymore. Though you're supposed to obey that guy, but as soon as he lets you know, hey, your boss is boss. You're, I mean, the, the man, he's, he's, he's down here. Okay, I'll get that done. But that's the idea. It's because of who you ultimately serve. But it's with a sincere heart that you're to serve. In the Greek, it's haplotis, meaning singleness and sincerity. Also, it's not self-seeking. It's openness of heart manifesting itself by generosity. Sincere heart. Serve, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with respect for who they are, the authority they have, but with generosity. Now, who of you have ever gone to work and just been like, you know what? They don't have to pay me today. I'm going to call human resources. Y'all just keep today's pay. Anybody ever done that? No? One person. Okay. That's the idea. That you would be generous about it. But remember who Paul's writing to. He's not writing to a free society, right? He is writing to slaves. He says slaves, not employees of a bad employer or a good employer. He says slaves obey, serve with a sincere heart, with generosity. That's the idea. Whether unjust or just, the people that you're serving are either unjust or just. In Colossians, he uses that terminology. But here he just says, obey with generosity, being sincere in how you're doing, with openness of heart. Serve your earthly masters. And note also that he doesn't say anything about liking what you do. Remember, they're slaves. But for us today, I mean, you, you maybe, if you really like your job, really do like your job, you might go to work and be like, you know what, today, I love my job so much, they don't have to pay me today. I just really love doing what I'm doing. You might say that, maybe, if you really love your job. But probably not. But that's the heart that we have to have, that we're told to have. I'm not suggesting you go in there and to appease the Lord or up your standing with God. I'm going to work for free today so I get something. It's not the idea, but it's, it's a position of the heart. And then in verse 6, he says, not, not, by, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ or slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. So it's shifting focus. We serve earthly masters. We're told to do that with sincerity of heart, but we do it as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. So it's the will of God that we go and we serve people here. We go to work. Work needs to be done. Adam was commanded, work, subdue the earth. Work is a good thing. We're meant to do that. But he says, don't do it by way of eye service. Now, in the Greek, it's a word that I'm not going to attempt to 
pronounce. The one commentary I read, um, he said that it seems as if this word is a word that Paul invented to convey his point, to get his point across. He just made this word up, and it's really, really long. But it reminds me of my dad, oddly enough, making up words to get his point across, and you can't really pronounce them. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's the idea in the, in the NIV, it translates it, it translates it more clearly. It says, obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you. That's the idea. It's when your boss is watching, you tend to work a little bit more diligently, right? But when he's somewhere else, we can easily be lazy, and I'm guilty. But that's the idea. Don't do it for eyes. Don't do it because they're watching, and you should be doing it, and you want to be propped up. But do it as for Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And the ideal Christians, the ideal for Christians is for their daily work seen or unseen by anyone, is to be accepted by God. Because ultimately God sees all. He is in all and through all. If we do it for Him and then rejoice in Him, it's done not by constraint or carelessly, but because it is your will. And when our will lines up with God's will, we're right in the middle of where we should be. And that's where we find peace and we find contentment. And godliness with contentment is great gain no matter what your circumstances. Whether it's slave or free, it doesn't matter. Whether you have an awesome boss or a horrible boss, if you're serving to please God's will, you're in his will, you'll find peace and contentment. No matter, It doesn't matter what you're doing. Now, if your boss has you doing something that is, goes against Scripture, Scripture would say, Stop working for your boss. Don't do that. Same thing with children. If parents are telling children they need to do something, it goes against Scripture. A little bit different to walk out when it comes to a child and a parent, but nonetheless, if it goes against Scripture, you're not bound by what your boss is telling you. That is important to remember. But it's rendering service, verse 7, with a good will as to the Lord, not man. It's not about the output that others see, but it's the spirit at work within you. It all comes back to a heart issue it's work that is done from the heart with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. And then verse eight, <clears throat> verse 8, here comes the promise. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So there's command and then there's promise. Just like children, there's command, obey your parents. You know, this is right. Do it in the Lord so that it may go well with you. You would live long in the land. Right? It's command and promise. The same is here. It's command and promise. Bondservant, obey your earthly masters. As to the Lord, this you will receive back from the Lord. You don't do these good things from your boss because he's going to give you a bonus. You do these things for your boss, for the Lord, because the Lord is going to pay you back for what you're doing. And what the Lord pays back is much greater than you will ever have here on this earth. This is not monetary. This is not physical. What is to be paid back is to be paid back in heaven. It's an eternal reward on your investment, on your work and what you're doing. That is the promise. And this has nothing to do with justification, mind you. But it's just the abundant promise of what's to come. We don't do this to be justified. We do it because we're justified. The difference. <clears throat> and then verse 9, again, to balance this out, he says, Masters, do the same to them 
and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. He says, do the same to them. The principle remains the same. They both apply. Roles may be different, but there is the same need to act as servants to the Lord and doing the will of God and showing goodwill, even though the roles are different. He's saying it's the same. He doesn't leave it up to the master to say, well, you've been instructed to do what I say, so now I get to tell you whatever I want you to do. That's not what he said. He doesn't leave that up there. Praise the Lord. He instructs them, you've got to do the same. The authority you have was given to you. You should honor me with it, is what the Lord is saying. And then he says, practically stop your threatening. And trying to squeeze out any last bit of effort from their servants, masters in, in that day would threaten them with punishment, right? Would crack the whip just to get that last little bit out of them. Right? Praise the Lord, that's not how we live today here. But nonetheless, an employer can be just as threatening to an employee to get more effort out of them. And Paul says, stop that. Stop your threatening. Do what, it's, do what is right. But if they're not careful, they can act as if they have a whip in their hand to get more out of someone rather than just being generous with them with a sincere heart leading their employees. But the master should know for certain that he and his servant are both equal before their master in heaven and he has shows no partiality. All will give an account. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We will all give an account. Servants render service to the Lord. Masters must bear in mind that they themselves are servants. And all must remember there to give an account. Now wrapping up, give you this quote here from Charles Spurgeon. And it's very fitting. He says, very beautifully balanced is the whole system of gospel morals. There is no undue advantage given by the fact of our being rendered equal in Christ so that the servant is to be less obedient to the master or the child to the parent. Neither is there any undue power given to those who are in authority. But the grace of God teaches all to do unto all as we would that they should do unto us. With Christ, the field is level. It's him, everyone else. But when we seek to take him out of his place, the place that he needs to be, all of a sudden, scales begin to tip in our minds. We believe that we are better than others. Others are less than we are. We have authority over them. We say they do. And that throws it out of balance, but the gospel balances the scales. But in all of our relationships, whether child or parent, whether slave or free, employee or employer, student or teacher, sheep or shepherd, peer to peer, in all of our relationships, we're to submit to one another. How we learn to follow others should never be contingent upon how we are led. We have been so instructed on how we are to follow but how we learn to lead will always be contingent upon how we follow. We're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Chapter 5, verse 21. 
Before Paul talks about husbands and wives, children and parents, any relationship that we have, before he practically teaches any of that, he says that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If we lose our reverence for Christ, we will lose our submission to one another. And we'll begin to see each other differently as lesser or greater, and we'll act accordingly. But it's out of reverence for Christ that we submit to one another and serve one another in all relationships. Lord, thank you for this morning. Lord, again, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for not leaving us without it. I thank you for your spirit, Lord, just to to guide us into all things and teach us all things and bring to remembrance all things, Lord. And I pray for us, Lord, as a church, that we would diligently, Lord, seek to know you and seek to understand and seek to learn. To remember that you command us to teach what we know, but we can't teach what we don't know. And I just pray, Lord, that you convict our hearts to come to know you, Lord. And as we learn, we give that away, Lord, to, to, our, to our children in the workplace, Lord, that we work diligently for, 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 for bosses, Lord, whether they're good or bad, Lord, but do it for you. And I pray, Lord, if we're in a position of authority, that we would serve and we would lead, Lord, in a way that pleases you with sincerity of heart, Lord, and a generosity, Lord, that pleases you and edifies others, Lord, and points others to you. I pray, Lord, in all our relationships, Lord, that you are at the forefront of it, Lord, that if we could find ourselves seeking you and finding you, Lord, that all other relationships would fall into place, Lord. I just pray for us as a church that you just continue to teach us this and shape us and mold us and the people that you would have us to be, Lord. We love you and we thank you. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.